Section fourteen of the Fifth Queen. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Elizabeth Clatt. The Fifth Queen by Ford Maddox Ford. Part two. Chapter seven. The king came to the revels at the Bishop of Winchester's, for these two were given in honour of the queen, and he had altered in his mind to let the emperor and Francis know that he was inclined to weaken his new alliances. Besides, there was the newest suitor for the hand of the Lady Mary, the young Duke Philip of Wittelsbach, who must be shown how great were the resources of the land. Young, gay, dark, a famous warrior and a good Catholic, he sat behind the Queen, and speaking German of a sort, he made her smile at times. The play was the Maniacme of Plautus, and Duke Philip interpreted it to her. She seemed at times so nearly human, that the King, glancing back over his shoulder to note whether she disgraced him, could settle down into his chair and rest both his back and his misgivings. Seeing the frown leave his brow, all the courtiers grew glad behind him. Cromwell talked with animation to Baumbach, the ambassador from the Schmalkaldner League, since he had not seen the King so gay for many days, and Gardiner in his bishop's robes smiled with a black pleasure, because his feast was so much more prosperous than privy seals had been. There was no one there of the Lady Mary's household, because it was not seemly that she should be where her suitor was before he had been presented to her. The large hall was lit with tapers at dusk, and hung with ivy and with holly. Dried woodruff, watermint, and other sweet herbs were scattered about the floors to give an agreeable odour. The antlers of deer from the bishop's chase in Winchester were like a forest of dead boughs, branching from the walls, some gilded, some silvered, some supporting shields emblazoned with the arms of the sea, of the bishop, of the king, or of Cleves. An army of wood-pigeons and stock-doves with silver collars about their necks was at one time let fly into the hall, and the swish of their wings and afterwards their cooing among the golden rafters of the high ceiling made pleasing sounds, and mingled with the voices of sweet singing from the galleries at each end of the hall near the roof. The players spoke their parts bravely, and because this play was beloved among all others at the court, there was a great and general contentment. For the after-scene they had a display of theology. There were three battles of men, in black with red hats, horns branching above them, and in the centre a great devil with a triple tiara, who danced holding up an enormous key. These stood on the right. On the left were priests in fustian, holding enormous flagons of Rhenish wine and dancing in a drunken measure with their arms round more drunken doxies, dressed like German women. In the centre stood grave and reverend men, wearing horsehair beards and the long gowns of English bishops and priests. Before these there knelt an angel in flame-coloured robes with wings like the rainbow. The angel supported a great volume on the back of which might be read in letters of gold, Regis Nostri Sapientia. The great devil, dancing forward, brandishing his key, roared that these reverend men should kneel to him. He held out a cloven foot and bade them kiss it. But a venerable bishop cried out, "'You be Antichrist! I know you! You be the arch-devil! But from this book I will confound you! Thank God that we have one that leads us aright!' Coming forward, he read in Latin from the book of the King's Wisdom, and the great devil fell back fainting into the arms of the men in red hats. The King called out, 
"'By God, Goodman Bishop, you have spoken well!' And the court roared. Then one from the other side danced out, holding his flagon and grasping his fat wife round the waist. He sang in a gross and German way, smacking his lips, that these reverend Englishmen should leave their godly ways and come down among the Lutherans. But the old bishop cried out, "'I, Dr. Martinus, I know thee. Thou despisest the body of God. Thou art a fornicator. God forbid that our English priests should go among women as ye do. Listen to wisdom. For, thank God, we have one to lead us aright.' These words spread a sudden shiver into the hall, for no man there knew whether the king had commanded them to be uttered. The king sat back in his chair, half frowning. Anne blinked. Philip of Wittelsbach laughed aloud. The Catholic ambassadors, Chapuy and Mariac, who had fidgeted in their seats as if they would leave the hall, now leant forward. "'Aye,' the player-bishop called out, "'our goodly queen cometh from a court that was never yet joined to your small coldness, nor to them that go by your name, Dr. Martinus, thou lecher. Here in England thou shalt find no heresies but the pure and purged word of God.' Shapewes bent an aged white hand behind his ear to miss no word. His true and smiling face blinked benevolently. Cromwell smiled, too, licking his lips dangerously. Baumbach, the schmal Kaldner, understanding nothing, rolled his German blue eyes in his great head like a pink baby's, and tried to catch the attention of Cromwell, who talked over his shoulder to one of his men. But the many Lutherans that were in the hall scowled at the floor. The player-bishop was reading thunderous words of the king, written many years before, against married priests. Henry sat back in his round chair, grasping the arms with his enormous hands. "'Why, Master Bishop!' he called out. The player stopped his reading and looked at the king, his air of austerity never leaving him. Henry, however, waved his hand and said no more. This dreadful incident caused a confusion in the players. They faltered. The player Lutheran slunk back to his place with his wife, and all of them stood with their heads hanging down. They consulted among themselves, and at last filed out from the room, leaving the stage for some empty minutes bare and menacing. Men held their breath. The king was seen to be frowning. But a quick music was played from the galleries, and a door opened behind. There came in many figures in white to symbolify the deities of ancient Greece and Rome and in black, with ashes upon her head, there was Ceres lamenting that Persephone had been carried into the realms of Pluto. No green thing should blow or grow upon this earth, she wailed in a deep and full voice, until her daughter trod again there. The other deities covered their heads with their white skirts. No one heeded this show very much in the hall, for the whispers over what had gone before never subsided again that day. Men turned their backs upon the stage in order to talk with others behind them, and it was generally agreed that if this refurbishing of old doctrines were no more than a bold stroke of Bishop Gardiner's, Henry at least had not scowled very harshly upon it. So that, for the most part, they thought that the old faith might come back again, whilst others suddenly remembered, much more clearly than before, that Cleves was a principality not truly Lutheran and that the marriage with Anne had not tied them at all to the schmal Caldner's league. Therefore this shadow of the old ways caused new uneasiness, for there was hardly any man there that had not some of the monastery lands. The king was the man least moved in the hall. 
He listened to the lamentations of Mother Ceres, and gazed at a number of naked boys who issued suddenly from the open door. They spread green herbs in a path from the door to the very feet of Anne, who blinked at them in amazement, and they paid no heed to Mother Ceres, who asked indignantly how any green thing could grow upon the earth that she had bidden lie barren till her daughter came again. Persephone stood framed in the doorway. She was all in white, very slim and tall. In among her hair she had a wreath of green Egyptian stones, called feridets, of which many remained in the treasuries of Winchester, because they were soft and of so little value that the visitors of the monasteries had left them there. And she had these green feridets, cut like leaves, worked into the white lawn over her breasts. In her left arm there lay a cornucopia filled with gold coins, and in her right a silver coronet of olive leaves. She moved in a slow measure to the music, bending her knees to right and to left, drawing her long dress into white lines and curves, until she stood in the centre of the green path. She smiled patiently and with a rapt expression, as if she had come out of a dream. The wreath of olive-leaves, she said, the gods sent to their most virtuous, most beauteous queen, who had brought peace in England. The cornucopia filled with gold was the offering of Plutus to the noble and benevolent king of these parts. Her words could hardly be heard, for the voices of the theologians in the hall before her. Henry suddenly turned back, lifted his hand, and shouted, "'Be silent!' Persephone's voice became very audible in the midst of the terrified hush of all these people, who feared their enormous king as if he were a wild beast that at one moment you could play with and the next struck you dead. "'How happy is England among the nations!' The voice rang out clear and fluting like a boy's. "'Her people how free and bold! Her laws how gentle and beneficent! Her nobles how courteous and sweet in their communings together for the public weal! How thrice happy that land when peace is upon the earth! Her women how virtuous! Her husbandmen how satiated! Her cattle how they let down their milk!" She swayed round to the gods that were uncovering their heads behind her. "'I, my masters, and fellow godsheads, woe is me that we never knew this happy and contented country! Better it had been there to dwell than upon high Olympus! Better than in the Cyclades! better than in the islands of the blest than hide amid the Bermoothian tempest. Woe is me!" Her expression grew more rapt. She paused as if she had lost the thread of the words, and then spoke again, gazing far out over the hall as jugglers do in performing feats of balancing. For surely we had been more safe than reigning alone above the clouds had we lived here, the veriest hinds, beneath a king that is five times blessed in that he is a most wealthy and generous of rewards, most noble of courage, most eloquent, most learned in the law of men, and most high interpreter of the law of God." Seeing that the king smiled, as though he had received a just panegyric, a great clamour of applause went up in the hall, and swaying beneath the weight of the cornucopia, she came to the king over the path of green herbs and boughs. Henry reached out his hands himself to take his present, smiling and genial, and that alone was a sign of great favour, for by rights she should have knelt with it, offered it and then receded, giving it into the arms of a serving-man. She passed on, and would have crowned the queen with the silver wreath, but the great hood that Anne wore stood in the way, therefore she laid it in the queen's lap. Henry caught at her hanging sleeve. 
"'That was a fine gay speech,' he said. "'I will have it printed.' Little ripples of fear and coldness ran over her, for her dress was thin and her arms bared between the loops above. Her eyes roved round upon the people, as if, tall and white, she were a Christian virgin in the agonies of martyrdom. She tried to pull her sleeve from between his great fingers, and she whispered in a sort of terror, "'You stay the mask!' He lay back in his chair, laughing so that his grey beard shook. "'Why, thou art a pert baggage,' he said. "'I could stay there singing for good, and I would.' He looked her up and down, commanding and good-humouredly malicious. She put her hand to her throat as if it throbbed, and uttered with a calmness of desperation, "'That were great pity. They have practised much, and their breaths are passable sweet.' The godheads with their beards of tow, their lyres and thunderbolts all gilt, stood in an awkward crescent, their music having stopped. Henry laughed at them. "'I know thy face,' he said. "'It would be less than a king to forget it.' "'I am Catherine Howard,' she faltered, stretching out her hands beseechingly. "'Let me go back to my place.' "'Oh, I,' he answered but thou'st shed thy rag since I saw thee on a mule." He loosed her sleeve. "'Let the good men sing a God's name.' In her relief to be free, she stumbled on the sweet herbs. It was a dark night into which they went out from the bishop's palace. Cressets flared on his river-steps, and there were torches down the long garden for those who went away by road. Because there would be a great crowd of embarkers at the bishop's landing-place, so that there might be many hours to wait until their barge should come, Catherine, by the office of old Sir Nicholas, had made a compact with some of the maids of honour of the Lady Elizabeth. A barge was to wait for them at the cross-keys, a common stage some ten minutes down the river. Catherine, laughing, gay with relief and gladdened with words of praise, held Margot's hand tight and kept her fingers on Sir Nicholas's sleeve. It was raining a fine drizzle, so that the air of the garden smelt moist, even against the odour of the torches. The old knight pulled the hood of his gown up over his head, for he was hoarse with a heavy cold. It was pitch black beyond the gatehouse. In the open fields before the wall, torches here and there appeared to burn in mid-air, showing beneath them the heads and the hoods of their bearers hurrying home, and where they turned to the right along a narrow lane, a torch showed far ahead above a crowd packed thick between dark house-fronts and gables. They glistened with wet and sent down from their gutters spouts of water that gleamed, catching the light of the torch, like threads of opal fire on the pallid dove-colour of the towering house-fronts. The torch went round a corner, its light withdrew along the walls by long jumps as its bearer stepped to the distance ahead. Then it was all black. Walking was difficult over the immense cobbles of the roadway, but in the pack of the crowd it was impossible to fall, for people held one another. But it was also impossible to speak, and muffling her face in her hood, Catherine walked smiling and squeezing Margot's hand out of pure pleasure with the world that was so fair in the midst of this blackness and this heavy cold. There was a swishing repeated three times and three thuds and twists of white on heads and shoulders just before her undistinguishable yells of mockery dwindled down from high above, and a rushlight shone at an immense elevation, illuminating a faint square of casement that might have been in the heavens. Three apprentices had thrown down paper bags of powdered chalk. 
the men who had been struck, and several others who had been maltreated on former nights, or who resented this continual prentice scandal, began a frightful outcry at the door of the house. More bags came bursting down, and foul water. The yells and battle-cries rolled in the narrow space under the house-fronts that nearly kissed each other high overhead, and the crowd, brought to a standstill, swayed and pushed against the walls. Catherine lost her hold of the old knight's sleeve, and she could see no single thing. She felt round her in the blackness for his arm, but a heavy man stumbled against her. Suddenly his hand was under her arm, drawing her a little. His voice seemed to say, "'Down this gully is a way about.' In the passage it was blacker than the mouth of hell, and her eyes still seemed to have in them the dazzle of light and triumph she had just left. There was a frightful stench of garbage, and it appeared to be a vault, because the outcry of the men besieging the door volleyed and echoed the more thunderously. There came the sharp click of a latch, and Catherine found herself impelled to descend several steps into a blackness, from which came up a breath of closer air and a smell of rotting straw. Fear suddenly seized upon her, and the conviction that another man had taken the place of the old knight during the scuffle. But a heavy pressure of an arm was suddenly round her waist, and she was forced forward. She caught a shriek from Margot. The girl's hand was torn from her own, a door slammed behind, and there was a deep silence in which the heavy breathing of a man became audible. "'If you cry out,' a soft voice said, "'I will let you go.' but probably you will lose your life." She had not a breath at all in her, but she gasped, "'Will you do a rape?' and fumbled in her pocket for her crucifix. Her voice came back to her, muffled and close, so that she was in a very small cellar. "'When you have seen my face you may love me,' came to her ears in an inane voice. "'I would you might, for you have a goodly mouth for kisses.' She breathed heavily. The click of the beads on her cross filled the silence. She fitted the bar of the crucifix to her knuckles, and felt her breath come calmer. For if the man struck a light, she could strike him in the face with the metal of her cross, held in the fist. She could blind him if she hit an eye. She stepped back a little and felt behind her the damp stone of a wall. The soft voice uttered more loudly, "'I offer you a present of great price. I can solve your perplexities.' Catherine breathed between her teeth and said nothing. "'But if you draw a knife,' the voice went on, "'I will set you loose. There are as good as Madame Howard.' On the door there came the sound of soft thuds. "'That is your maid, Margot Poins,' the voice said. "'You had better bid her begone. This is a very evil gully. She will be strangled.' Catherine called, "'Go and fetch someone to break down this door.' The voice commented, "'In the city she will find none to enter this gully. It is a sanctuary of outlaws.' There was the faintest glimmer of a casement square, high up before Catherine. Violence and carryings off were things familiar to her imagination. A hundred men might have desired her whilst she stood on high in the mask. She said hotly, "'If you will hold me here for a ransom you will find none to pay it.' She heard the soft hiss of a laugh, and the voice. I would myself pay more than other men, but I would have no man see us together." She shrank into herself and held to the wall for comfort. She heard a click, and in the light of a shower of brilliant sparks was the phantom of a man's beard and dim walls. One tiny red glow remained in the tinder, 
like an illuminant in a black nothingness. He seemed to hold it about breast-high and to pause. "'You had best be rid of Margot Poins,' the musing voice came out of the thick air. "'Send her back to her mother's people. She gets you no friends.' Catherine wondered if she might strike about eighteen inches above the tiny spark, or if in these impenetrable shadows there were a very tall man. "'Your Margot's folk miscall you in shameful terms. I would be your servant. But it is distasteful to a proper man to serve one that hath about her an atmosphere of lewdness.' Catherine cursed at him to relieve the agony of her fear. The voice answered composedly. One greater than the devil is my master. But it is good hearing that you are loyal to them that serve you. So you shall be loyal to me, for I will serve you well." The spark in the tinder moved upwards. The man began to blow on it. In the dim glimmer there appeared red lips, a hairy moustache, a straight nose, gleaming eyes that looked across the flame, a high, narrow forehead, and the gleam of a jewel in a black cap. This glowing and dusky face appeared to hang in the air. Catherine shrank with despair and loathing. She had seen enough to know the man. She made a swift step towards it, her arm drawn back, but the glow of the box moved to one side, the ashes faded, there was already nothing before she could strike. "'You see, I am Throckmorton, a goodly knight,' the voice said, laughing. This man came from Lincolnshire, near her own home. He had been the brother of a gentleman who had a very small property, and he had had one sister. God alone knew for what crime his father had cursed Throckmorton and left his patrimony to the monks at Ely, but his sister had hanged herself. Throckmorton had disappeared. In that black darkness she had seemed to feel his gloating over her helplessness, and his laughing over all the villainies of his hateful past. He was so loathsome to her that merely to be near him had made her tremble when the day before he had fawned over her and shown her the side door to Privy Seal's room. Now the sound of his breathing took away all her power to breathe. She panted, "'Infamous dog! I will have you shortened by the head for this rape!' "'It is true I am a fool to play cat and mouse,' he answered. "'But I was ever thus from a child. I have played silly pranks. Listen to gravity.' I bring you here because I would speak to you where no ear dare come to listen. This is a sanctuary of night-robbers." His voice took on fantastically and grotesquely the nasal tones of doctors of logic when they discuss abstract theses. I am a bold man to dare come here, but some of these are in my pay. Nevertheless, I am a bold man. Though indeed the step from life into death is so short and so easily passed that a man is a fool to fear it. Nevertheless, some do fear it. Therefore, as men go, I am bold. Though, since I set much store in the intervention of the saints on my behalf, maybe I am not so bold. Yet I am a good man, or the saints would not protect me. On the other hand, I am fain to do their work for them. So maybe they would protect me whether I were virtuous or no. Maybe they would not, however, for it is a point still disputed as to whether a saint might use an evil tool to do good work. But in short, I am here to tell you what Privy Seal would have of you." "'God help the pair of you,' Catherine said. "'Have you descended to cellar work now?' "'Madam Howard,' the voice came, "'for what manner of man do you take me?' I am a very proper man that do love virtue, 
there are few such philosophers as I since I came out of Italy. It was certain to her now that Privy Seal, having seen her thick with the Bishop of Winchester, had delivered her into the hands of this vulture. "'If you have a knife,' she said, "'put it into me soon. God will look kindly on you, and I would pardon you half the crime.' She closed her eyes and began to pray. "'Madam Howard,' he answered in a lofty tone of aggrievement, "'the door is on the latch. The latch is at your hand to be found for a little fumbling. Get you gone if you will not trust me.' "'Aye, you have cut-throats without,' Catherine said. She prayed in silence to Mary and the saints to take her into the kingdom of heaven with a short agony here below. Nevertheless, she could not believe that she was to die, for being still young, though death was always round her, she believed herself born to be immortal. The sweat was cold upon her face, but Throckmorton was upbraiding her in a lofty nasal voice. "'I am an honourable knight,' he cried, in his affected and shocked tones. "'If I have undone men it was for love of the Republic. I have nipped many treasons in the bud. The land is safe for a true man because of my work.' "'You are a werewolf,' she shuddered. "'You eat your brother.' "'Why, enough of this talk,' he answered. "'I offer you a service. Will you take it? I am the son of a gentleman. I love wisdom, for that she alone is good. Virtue I love for virtue's sake, and I serve my king. What more goeth to the making of a proper man? You cannot tell me.' His voice changed suddenly. "'If you do hate a villain, now is the time to prove it. Would you have him down? Then tell your gossip Winchester that the time approaches to strike, and that I am ready to serve him. I have done some good work for the King's Highness through Privy Seal, but my nose is a good one. I begin to smell out that Privy Seal worketh treasonably." "'You are a mad fool to think to trick me,' Catherine said. "'Neither you nor I nor any man believes that Privy Seal would work a treason. You would trick me into some foolish utterances. It needed not a cellar in a cutthroat's gully for that.' "'Madam Spitfire,' his voice answered, "'you are a true woman.' I, a true man. We may walk well together. Before the Most High God I wish you no ill." "'Then let me go!' she cried. "'Tell me your lies some otherwhere.' "'The latch is near your hand still,' he said. "'But I will speak to you no otherwhere. It is only here in the abode of murder and evil men that in these evil times a man may speak his mind and fear no listener.' She felt tremulously for the latch and its rattling set her heart on the jump. When she pulled the door ajar she heard voices in the distant street. It rushed through her mind that he was set neither on murder nor unspeakable things. Or, indeed, he had cutthroats waiting to brain her on the top step. She said tremulously, "'Tell me what you will with me in haste.' "'Why, I have bidden your barge-fellows wait for you,' he answered, "'till cock-crow, if need were. They shall not leave you. They fear me too much. Shut the door again, for you dread me no more." Her knees felt suddenly limp, and she clung to the latch for support. She believed that Mary had turned the heart of this villain. He repeated that he smelt treason working in the mind of an evil man, and that he would have her tell the Bishop of Winchester. "'I did bring you here, for it is the quickest way. I came to you, for I saw that you were neither craven nor fool, nor high-placed, so that it would be dangerous to be seen talking with you later, when you understood my good will and I am drawn towards you since you come from near my home." Catherine said hurriedly between her prayers, "'What will you of me? 
no man cometh to a woman without seeking something from her. Why, I would have you look favourably upon me, he answered. I am a goodly man. I am meet for your masters, she answered with bitter contempt. You have the blood of my kin on your hands. He sighed half mockingly. If you will not give me your favours, he said in a low, laughing voice, I would have you remember me, according as my aid is of advantage to you." "'God help you,' she said. "'I believe now that you have it in mind to betray your master.' "'I am a man that can be very helpful,' he answered, with his laughing assurance that had always in it the ring of a sneer. "'Tell Bishop Gardiner again, that the hour approaches to strike if these cowards will ever strike.' Catherine felt her pulses beat more slowly. Sir, she said, I tell you very plainly that I will not work for the advancement of the Bishop of Winchester. He turned me loose upon the street to-night after I had served him, with neither guard to my feet nor bit to my mouth. If my side goes up, he may go with it, but I love him not." Why, then, devise with the Duke of Norfolk? he answered after a pause. Gardiner is a black rogue, and your uncle a yellow craven but bid them join hands till the time comes for them to cut each other's throats." "'You are a foul dog to talk thus of noblemen,' she said. He answered, "'Oh, la! you have little to thank your uncle for. What do you want? Will you play for your own hand? Or will you partner those two against the other?' "'I will never partner with a spy and a villain,' she cried hotly. He cried lightly. Oh, hey, goose the room foodle, you will say differently before long. If you will fight in a fight, you must have tools. Now you have none, and your situation is very parlous. I stand on my legs, and no man can touch me, she said hotly. But two men can hang you to-morrow, he answered. One man you know, the other is the Sieur Gardiner. Cromwell hath contrived that you should write a treasonable letter. Gardiner holdeth that letter's self. Catherine braved her own sudden fears with, "'Men are not such villains.' "'They are as occasion makes them,' he answered, with his voice of a philosopher. "'What manner of men these times breed you should know if you not be a fool. It is very certain that Gardiner will hang you with that letter, if you work not into his godly hands. See how you stand in need of a counsellor. Now you wish that you had done otherwise.' She said hotly, "'Never.' so I would act again to-morrow." "'Oh, fool, madam,' he answered. "'Your cousin's province was never to come within a score miles of the cardinal. Being a drunkard and a boaster, he was sent to Paris to get drunk and to boast.' The horror of the blackness, the damp, the foul smell, and all this treachery made her voice faint. She stammered, "'Show me a light, or let the door be opened. I am sick.' "'Neither,' he answered. I am as much as you in peril. With a light men may see in at the casement, with an open door they may come eavesdropping. When you have been in this world as long as I, you will love black night well." Her brain swam for a moment. "'My cousin was never in this plot against me,' she uttered faintly. He answered lightly, "'You may keep your faith in that toppet. Where you are a fool is to have believed that Privy Seal, who is a wise man, or Veridus, who is a philosopher after my heart, would have sent such a sot and babbler on such a tickle errand." "'He was sent,' protested Catherine. 
Aye, he was sent to blab about it in every tavern in Paris town. He was sent to frighten the red cap out of Paris town. He was suffered to blab to you that you might set your neck in a noose and be driven to be a spy. His soft chuckle came through the darkness like an obscene applause of a successful villainy. It was as if he were gloating over her folly and the rectitude of her mind. Red cap was working mischief in Paris, but red cap is timorous. He will go post haste back to Rome either because of your letter, or because of your cousin's boasting. But there are real and secret murderers waiting for him in every town in Italy on the road to Rome. Some are at Brescia, some at Rimini. At Padua there is a man with his neck, like yours, in a noose. It is a goodly contrivance." "'You are a vile pack,' Catherine said. And once more the smooth and unctuous sound came from his invisible throat. "'How shall you decide what is vileness? or where you will find a virtuous man?" he asked. "'Maybe you will find some among the bones of your old Romans. Yet your Seneca in his day did play the villain. Or maybe some at the court of Mamound. I know not, for I was never there. But here is a goodly world with prizes for them that can take them. Yet virtue may still flourish, for I have done middling well by serving my country. Now I am minded to retire into my lands, to cultivate good letters, and to pursue virtue. For here about the courts there are many distractions. The times are evil times. Yet I will do one good stroke more before I go." Catherine said hotly, "'If you go down into Lincolnshire I will call upon every man there to fall upon you and hang you.' "'Why?' he said. "'That is why I did come to you, since you are from where my lands are. If I serve you, I would have you to smooth my path there. I ask no more, for now I crave rest and a private life. It is very sure that I should never find that here, or in few parts of the land, so well I have served my king. Therefore if I serve you, you and yours shall cast above my retired farms and my honourable leisure the shadow of your protection. I ask no more." He chuckled almost inaudibly. "'I am set to watch you he said. Veridus will go to Paris to catch another traitor called Brancitor, for the world is full of traitors. Therefore, in a way, it rests with me to hang you." He seemed to be seated upon a cask, for there was a creaking of old wood, and he spoke very leisurely. Catherine said, "'Good-night, and God send you better thoughts.' "'Why stay, and I will be brief,' he pleaded. "'I dally, because it is sweet talking to a fair woman in a black place.' You are easily content, for all the sweet words you get from me," she scorned him. "'See you,' he said earnestly. "'It is true that I am set to watch you. I love you because you are fair. I might bend you since I hold you in the hollow of my hand. But I am a continent man, and there is here a greater stake to be had than any amorous satisfaction. I would save my country from a man who has been a friend, but has grown a villain. Listen. He appeared to pause to collect his words together. Baumbach, the Saxus ambassador, is here seeking to tack us to the Schmalkaldner heresies. Yesterday he was with Privy Seal, who loveth the Lutheran alliance. So Privy Seal takes him to his house, and shows him his marvellous armoury, which is such that no prince nor emperor hath elsewhere. So says Privy Seal to Baumbach, I love your alliance, but his highness will naught of it. And he fetched a heavy sigh. Catherine said, "'What does this hearsay to me?' "'He fetched a heavy sigh,' Throckmorton continued. 
and your uncle or gardener knew how heavy a sigh it was, their hearts would be very glad." "'This means that the King's Highness is very far from Privy Seal?' Catherine asked. "'His Highness hateth to do business with small princelings.' Throckmorton seemed to laugh at the King's name. "'His high and princely stomach loveth only to deal with his equals, who are great kings. I have seen the letters that have passed about this Cleve's wedding. Not one of them is from his Highness's hand. It is Privy Seal alone that shall bear the weight of the blow when rupture cometh." "'Well, she is a foul slut,' Catherine said, and her heart was full of sympathy for the heavy king. "'Nay, she is none such,' Throckmorton answered. "'If you look upon her with an unjaundiced eye, she will pass for a Christian to be kissed. It is not her body that his Highness hateth, but her fathering. This is a very old quarrel betwixt him and Privy Seal. His Highness hath been wont to see himself the arbiter of the Christian world. Now Privy Seal hath made of him an ally of German princelings. His Highness loveth the old faith and the old royal ways. Now Privy Seal doth seek to make him take up the faith of small cauldners, who are a league of bakers and unfrocked monks. Madam Howard, I tell you, that if there were but one man that could strike after the new Parliament is called together— Catherine cried, the very stones that Cromwell hath soaked with blood will rise to fall upon him when the King's feet no longer press them down." Throckmorton laughed almost inaudibly. "'Norfolk feareth Gardiner for a spy. Gardiner feareth the ambition of Norfolk. Bonner would sell them both to Privy Seal for the price of an archbishopric. The King himself is loath to strike, since no man in the land could get him together such another truckling Parliament as can Privy Seal.' He stopped speaking and let his words soak into her in the darkness, and after a long pause her voice came back to her. "'It is true that I have heard no man speak as you do. I can see that his dear Highness must be hatefully inclined to this filthy alliance.' "'Why, you are minded to come into my hut with me,' he chuckled. "'There are few men so clear in the head as I am. So listen again to me. If you would strike at this man, it is of no avail to meddle with him at home.' It shall in no way help you to clamour of good monks done to death, of honest men ruined, of virgins thrown on to dung-heaps. The King hath had the pence of these good monks, the lands of these honest men, and the golden neck-collars off these virgins." She called out, "'Keep thy tongue off this sacred King's name. I will listen to no more lewdness.' A torch passing outside sent a moving square of light through the high grating across the floor of the cellar. The damp walls became dimly visible with shining snail-tracks on them, and his great form leaning negligently upon a cask, his hand arrested in the pulling of his long beard, his eyes gleaming upon her, sardonic and amused. The light twisted round abruptly and was gone. "'You are monstrous fair,' he said, and sighed. She shuddered. "'No,' his mocking voice came again, "'speak not to the King not to whomsoever you shall elect to speak to the King, of this man's work at home. The King shall let him go very unwillingly, since no man can so pack a Parliament to do the King's pleasure. And he hath a nose for treasons that His Highness would give his own nose to possess." "'Keep thy tongue off the King's name,' she said again. He laughed and continued pensively. A very pretty treason might be made up of his speech before his armoury to Baumbach. Mark again how it went. Says he, here are such weaponings as no king, nor prince, nor emperor hath in Christendom. And in this country of ours are twenty gentlemen, my friends, have armories as great or greater." 
Then he sighs heavily, and saith, "'That our king will never join with your schmalkaldners. Yet I would give my head that he should.' Your madamship marks that this was said to the ambassador from the Lutheran League?" "'You cannot twist that into a treason,' Catherine whispered. "'No doubt,' he said reasonably. Such words from a minister to an envoy are but a courtesy, as one would say, I fain would help you, but my master wills it not." The voice suddenly grew crafty. "'But these words, spoken before an armoury and the matter of twenty gentlemen with armouries greater, Say that these twenty are creatures of my Lord Cromwell, implicateur, for the Lutheran cause. And again the matter. No king hath such an armoury. No king, I would have you observe." "'Why, this is monstrous foolish pettifogging,' Catherine said. "'No king would believe a treason in such words.' "'I call to mind Gilmore of Hurstleys, near our homes,' the voice came reflectively. "'I did know him,' Catherine said. You had his head." "'You never heard how Privy Seal did that,' the voice came back mockingly. Goodman Gilmore had many sheep died of the rot because it rained seven weeks on end. So coming back from a market-day, with too much ale for prudence and too little for silence, he cried, "'Curse on this rain! The weather was never good since knaves ruled about the king!' So that came to the ears of Privy Seal, who made a treason of it and had his sheep, and his house, and his lands, and his head. He was but one in ten thousand that have gone the same road home from market, and made speeches as treasonable." "'Thus poor Gilmore died?' Catherine asked. "'What a foul world this is!' "'Time it was cleansed,' he answered. He let his words rankle for a time, then he said softly, "'Privy Seal's words before his armoury were as treasonable as Gilmore's on the market-road. Again he paused. "'Privy Seal may call thee to account for such a treason,' he said afterwards. "'He holdeth thee in a hollow of his hand.' She did not speak. He said softly, "'It is a folly to be too proud to fight the world with the world's weapons.' The heavy darkness seemed to thrill with her silence. He could tell neither whether she were pondering his words, nor whether she still scorned him. He could not even hear her breathing. "'God help me!' he said at last, in a high, angry note. "'I am not such a man as to be played with too long. People fear me!' She kept silence still, and his voice grew high and shrill. "'Madam Howard, I can bend you to my will. I have the power to make such a report of you as will hang you to-morrow.' Her voice came to him expressionlessly, without any inflection. In few words, what would he have of her? She played his own darkness off against him, so that he could tell nothing new of her mood. He answered swiftly, "'I will that you tell the men you know what I have told you. You are a very little thing. It were no more to me to cut you short than to drown a kitten. But my own neck I prize. What I have told you I would have come to the ears of my Lord of Winchester. I may not be seen to speak with him myself. If you will not tell him, another will. But I would rather it were you.' "'Evil dreams make thy nights hideous,' she cried out so suddenly, that his voice choked in his throat. "'Thou art such dirt as I would avoid to tread upon, and shall I take thee into my hand?' She was panting with disgust and scorn. "'I have listened to thee. Listen thou to me. Thou art so filthy, that if thou couldst make me a queen by the touch of a finger, I had rather be a goose-girl and eat grass. 
If by thy forged tales I could cast down Mahmoud, I had rather be his slave than thy accomplice. Could I lift my head if I had joined myself to thee? Thou Judas to the fiend! Junius Brutus, when he did lay siege to a town, had a citizen come to him that would play the traitor. He accepted his proffered help, and when the town was taken, he did flay the betrayer. But thou art so filthy that thou shouldst make me do better than that noble Roman. For I would flay thee, disdaining to be aided by thee. And upon thy skin I would write a message to thy master, saying that thou wouldst have betrayed him." His laugh rang out discordant and full of black mirth. For a long time his shoulders seemed to shake. He spoke at last quite calmly. "'You will have a very short course in this world,' he said. A hoarse and hollow shouting reverberated from the gully. The glow of a torch grew bright in the window-space. Catherine had been upon the point of opening the door, but she paused, fearing to meet some night villains in the gully. Throckmorton was now silent, as if he utterly disdained her, and a frightful blow upon the wood of the door, so certain were they that the torch would pass on, made them spring some yards further into the cellar. The splintering blows were repeated, the sound of them was deafening. Glaring light entered suddenly through a great crack, and the smell of smoke. Then the door fell in half, one board of it across the steps, the other smashing back to the wall upon its hinges. Sparks dripped from the torch, smoke eddied down, and upon the cellar steps were the legs of a man who rested a great axe upon the ground and panted for breath. "'Up the steps!' he grunted. "'If you ever ran, now run. The guard will not enter here.' Catherine sped up the steps. It was old Rochford's face that greeted hers beneath the torch. He grunted again, "'Run you! I am spent!' and suddenly dashed the torch to the ground. At the entry of the tunnel some make of creature caught at her sleeve. She screamed and struck at a gleaming eye with the end of her crucifix. Then nothing held her, and she ran to where, at the mouth of the gully, there were a great many men with torches and swords peering into the darkness of the passage. In the barge Margot made an outcry of joy and relief, and the other ladies uttered civil speeches. The old man, whose fur near the neck had been slashed by a knife-thrust as he came away, explained pleasantly that he was able to strike good blows still. But he shook his head none the less. It was evil, he said, to have such lovers as this new one. Her cousin was bad, but this rapscallion must be worse indeed to harbour her in such a place. Margot, who knew her London, had caught him at the barge, to which he had hurried. "'Aye,' he said, "'I thought you had played me a trick and gone off with some spark. But when I heard to what place I fetched the guard along with me. Well for you that it was I, for they had not come for any other man, and then you had been stuck in the street. For, you see, whether you would have had me fetch you away or no, it is ten to one that a gallant who would take you there would mean that you should never come away alive and God help you whilst you lived in that place." Catherine said, "'Why, I pray God that you may die on the green grass yet, with time for a priest to shrive you. I was taken there against my will.' She told him no more of the truth, for it was not every man's matter, and already she had made up her mind that there was but one man to whom to speak. She went into the dark end of the barge, and prayed until she came to Greenwich, for the fear of the things she had escaped still made her shudder and in the company of Mary and the saints of Lincolnshire alone could she feel any calmness. She thought they whispered round her in the night, amid the lapping of the water. End of section 14